Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. People are always, of course, looking for assurances in this life. We're always demanding those, it seems, because we recognize that one another is so unreliable, men are unreliable, and so we demand things like guarantees and warranties and oaths and sworn affidavits, security bonds, and on and on and on. And it really just permeates our culture because we are living in a culture of broken promises. We're living in a time and a place of disappointments. We are disappointed in people. We're disappointed in promises. We're disappointed in guarantees all the time. Well, God, knowing our weaknesses, has given us His own assurances. Not that He should ever be doubted and not that His word once spoken would ever be insufficient, but He understands that we are weak and we are frail, and so we are all subject to doubt. We're subject to seasons of, of upheaval, if you will, in our confidence in the Lord. And so He gives us, by way of His grace and His mercy, these sweet assurances that come into our life. And that is very much what Romans chapter 8 is about, as we've been seeing It is a a chapter about assurance. It's a chapter that is meant to, to secure our confidence that on one hand we will never be condemned if we are in Christ and on the other hand we'll never be separated from the love of Christ which is the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And we've been looking for several weeks now at this whole point in Romans 8. This issue of assurance and how we are granted it in so many ways. There are others that aren't mentioned here. He really doesn't even bring up the resurrection of Christ, which is the backbone of our assurance. But he's looking at more the personal experience that we have as believers. And Paul is moving to establish this, if you remember in the opening verses, first of all, by simply the work of Christ. That which he launched into in chapter 5, having been justified by God, we, or having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. He really has expanded on that in the entirety of chapters 5 through 8 and, and sort of revisits it there at the beginning. And then he moves from that to the work of the Holy Spirit, who, as we saw last time, grants us new life. This resurrected life that comes within us that is irrepressible. A new spiritual nature, a new heart, a new mind that brings, as we said last time, a whole new value system. That really is what happens to us. We previously valued sin, we previously valued the world, and now we value the things of God, a whole spiritual value system that has been embedded in our hearts by God. Paul referred to all of this by simply calling it the spirit of life, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He is a spirit who creates this life inside of us, And what's taken place within us will be matched eventually on the outside when he says he will give life to our mortal bodies. So there's there's an inner work that isn't fully manifest. It'll be manifest one day, but we've already tasted of it. And it's already enough, Paul says, to give an evidence, an evidence of what is to come. Well, if life has really been the dominant theme up to this point in the first 13 verses, as we come to verse 14 today, Paul shifts his metaphor from one about life 
to one about sonship, and really eventually to one about adoption, adoption as sons. Paul mentions sonship in each of the next four verses. All of it's still very much focused on the work of the Holy Spirit, who he calls the spirit of adoption at one point. And it's all still focused on the ways in which the Spirit brings about this assurance in our life. And it's through this image now of being God's children that Paul now wants to drive home that because of all of this, because of this sonship, we can have confidence, we can have assurance in our relationship to God. And specifically, he gives us three ways in which the Spirit gives us this assurance of our sonship, three ways in which he assures us of our status as God's children. Let me just read to you these verses, beginning in verse 14. Paul says, For we, uh, excuse me, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Three ways the Spirit gives us assurance as God's children, really seen in three key verbs, verses here. First of all, it is by the Spirit that we are led into His likeness as sons. It's by the Spirit that we're led into His likeness as sons. Paul, Paul speaks there in verse 14 about this leading by the Spirit. And it's not the kind of leading you might think. It's not some sort of inner guidance where the Spirit gives you some impulse that tells you what job to take, what house to buy, where, where to live, or what, what person to marry, or those kinds of things. This is something very different. And this isn't leadership in the sense that He's giving you some personal revelation some individualized truth that is over and above His all-sufficient Word. It's not some internal manifestation of of truth that's uh, prophetic in that sense. This is a leading into a likeness with God so that you're not only called a son or daughter of God, but you actually resemble Him in His character. Very similar to what He says in Luke 6, That whenever we are peacemakers, we will be called the children of God. That's just one aspect of likeness to Him. But He's saying that whenever we are those who are establishing peace with others, we're giving a resemblance that we are God's. Or here, He says, you'll notice in verse 14, He uses that little explanatory conjunction again. For. For. And he's telling us, or what he's telling us is he's explaining that just what he said in verse 13, what you remember he said there, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And now he replaces that, put to death the deeds of the body, with this little phrase, all who are led by the Spirit of God. They are the ones who are the sons of God. But it's that phrase, putting to death the deeds of the body, that helps us understand what he means by led. 
the leadership, in other words, and just as it was in verse 13, the leadership here is referring to an increasing role of the Holy Spirit over your ethical and over your moral life, leading you into a life of holiness. Another way to, to say that is that one of the evidences that you are a believer, one of the evidences that you are a Christian is conviction, conviction of sin, a, a, a burden in your conscience and mind when you are turning away from God. You can't find peace. You can't find rest. All of us go through seasons of doubt. We go through sometimes very dark seasons But when we are led, or when we have the Spirit of God, we are led by the Spirit of God, and we cannot escape conviction. We can't just walk down a road of sin overnight and feel no burden, no pain going on in our conscience, because we're led, and so we are are compelled to put to death the deeds of the body by Him. This word led is actually used by other ancient writers to speak of someone being controlled by things like anger or desire or pleasure or even uh, by reason itself, rational leading. But here Paul's talking about an ever-increasing role of the Spirit in controlling your heart and your mind and your tongue. In fact, he uses the same phrase over in Galatians He says in Galatians 5.18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And then he goes on to define that in terms of fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So those fruits really are just descriptions of how God is producing His life within you. Simply the life of Christ being manifest in us by the working of the Spirit. And we've mentioned it in, in weeks past. The Spirit doesn't work apart from the Word which He Himself inspired. It was the Spirit who inspired the writers of Scripture. And so it's only natural that as He works, He works through the Scripture. So that as Jesus prayed, God sanctifies us by His truth and His Word is truth. Well, it's the Spirit who's taking that truth that you're embedding into your heart all the time. It's the Spirit who is not letting you get away from those realities. You can try. You can try to shake it off for a time. But you will grieve Him. You will feel the burden in your heart because you're led by the Spirit. This is the confirmation. That's what I often tell people. I'll tell them whenever they are struggling with their their confidence or struggling with their assurance, I'll ask them, well, do you feel conviction for sin? Do you feel conviction for sin? Do you care if you sin? Well, yes, of course I care if I sin. In fact, that's my problem. Well, that's one of the evidences. As we've seen in the past, that by and large, believers don't care. They may feel conviction, but they're looking for escape. They're looking for ways out. They don't, they don't necessarily love God or His Word They're looking for ways to hide their sin. But what we do is we take the Word of God, we implant it into our hearts, and the Spirit takes that Word, illumining it to our minds. And so as we fill our minds with that truth, it's like giving the Spirit handles 
onto which he can grab hold and direct our thoughts and our deeds. And as he's doing that, he's leading us. He's leading us into likeness. All this bringing about the life of Jesus, even as Paul says down in verse 29, God has predestined us to this, to be conformed to the image of His Son. It's the leading of the Spirit that's working all that out within us. He's bringing us into likeness and into similarity with Christ. Even in those times when we may stray, He's bringing us back. So the Spirit, first of all, at work within us, giving us assurance that we're God's children by simply conforming us to His likeness, by leading us to put to death these deeds and so be filled with the fruits of His likeness. Secondly, we have assurance by the Spirit because it is by the Spirit that we cry with the closeness of a son. We cry with the closeness, the intimacy of a son. If we're led by the Spirit, Paul says, then we're sons. And if we're sons, then we have a certain kind of familiarity and a certain kind of closeness that you'll have with God. And it's interesting how he says this in verse 15. He writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Paul's essentially highlighting three things about this familiarity for us. First of all, there's an absence of of fear in it. There's a reality of adoption that is behind it, and there's a response of a child that it leads to. He's really, and what he's really saying here about this fear is that we didn't receive the Holy Spirit as a spirit of fear. He was not just there to leave us in the fear that we once knew. He sent His Holy Spirit indeed to make an emotional impact on us, but it wasn't the emotion of fear, it was the emotion of comfort. Fear is the sort of the default reality of everyone born into this world. Or, or really it's, it's a, a fear of death. A fear of judgment after death, we might say, that is their reality. Hebrews 2.15 speaks about how Christ delivered all those, by trusting in Him, He delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we were enslaved to fear. Enslaved to the fear of death, and really not just the death, but enslaved to the fear of what lay behind it, the shackles of, of judgment and the realities of our guilty conscience, and we had no way of escaping. No way of that, escaping that sort of foreboding sense of condemnation when we thought about, when we contemplate death. That's why people don't contemplate it very much. That's why they try to eradicate it. They try to fill their lives with happy thoughts and fill their lives with shallow thoughts. They don't sit around and think about their death very often because it terrifies them. But when they did, when they did, or when they do, they're shackled, shackled to fear. But John tells us, 1 John four eighteen, that there's no fear in love. 
But perfect love casts out all fear. Because fear, he says, has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In other words, fear has behind it some concept of judgment, some concept of punishment, some concept of being cast out. But John says that's not the right view of God. That's not the right view of His love. It's not a mature understanding. A mature understanding casts out all fear and replaces it with an understanding of God's perfect love. So that if you're, if you're in Christ, if you're in the love of God by Christ, there's no more place for fear. That's not what God intends for us. So He sends us His Holy Spirit, not as a spirit who would leave us enslaved to fear, but instead, Paul says, as a spirit of adoption as sons. The second thing that Paul really highlights here, a spirit of adoption. We are not intended to live in fearfulness. We're intended to live in the confident assurance of God's love for us that will never change. And so Paul expresses that through this beautiful image of adoption. It is, it is really legal language. It's official language. It's language of adoption. Paul doesn't use it often. He only uses it five times in Scripture, three of them right here in Romans. But it is rich, all, although not frequent. It is rich in its imagery of what it uh, has accomplished or what God has accomplished for us. God brings us, when He brings us near, He brings us into His family. In other words, this isn't some sort of divine foster care. This isn't some sort of temporal shelter that God brings you into for a season until your old life comes calling you back or until He gets tired of you. We are welcomed not as guests, not as slaves, but we are welcomed when He brings us into His, into his home. We are welcomed as His own family. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. You are entitled to all the rights that come with it. You see, when God... Or when we come to God, we come with Him with perhaps the attitude of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal came to his father there in Luke 15, says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just take me as your servant. That would really be more than what I deserve. I'm not entitled to anything. That's the attitude with which we come. But the attitude with which He receives us is that of the Father. Bring the best robe. And put it on him. Bring the ring and put it on his hand. The seal of the family. Let him wear it because he's part of this family now. He's entitled to all the best things that I have to give. He's entitled to wear the best dress that I have to give. He's entitled to all the inheritance that I have to give. He's entitled because He has every legal standing now. Every legal right. It's so interesting that in most cultures and throughout all time, there's always a way to legally bring someone into your family by way of adoption. There's always a way to make someone your son, but not a way to unmake them. 
And so there's always been a sense of security and a sense of understanding that when you are a part of the family, you always have that legal standing with God. You might be standing there, you might be sitting there and say, well, I'm not entitled to anything. I mean, I, I don't deserve anything. I deserve hell. Yeah, and your own reactions, your own faithfulness or lack of faithfulness, your own deeds, all those other things, that might be true. But in your position in Christ, none of that is true. Because the blessings that God has poured out on you He has granted you official rights as one of the children of His own household. This is where God places us because of our union with Christ. We're welcomed. We're welcomed not as slaves, as I said, not as house guests. We're welcomed as sons. With all the entitlements, with all the securities. And the key, as with natural adoption, is that all of this is completely and freely the choice and decision of God. It isn't something where He he came along and found something worthy within us and made us a part of His family. That occasionally happened in Roman adoptions, but that's not what Paul has in mind here. He never highlights that aspect at all. And even in those cases, there was no obligation laid upon the adopting parent. There's no obligation laid upon God. There's nothing that obligates him or compels him or does anything that would bring you into his family. This is just purely the freeness and, and um, abundance of his grace. Bestowing on you all these rights, bestowing on you all these benefits, this name, all these possessions, and and this position, all of it because of His unexplainable mercy. What Paul's saying is that one of the reasons we can be so certain of the love that God has given to us is because it wasn't achieved by us by anything that we did. It was completely and purely by God's choice. By adoption. One of the reasons you can be so sure that God hasn't brought you in and He's not going to treat you as some second class citizen, one of the reasons you can be so certain that His blessings will be firm and will be everlasting in your life is because you have received them, all of them, legally by His choice, not by your own. By His faithfulness, not by your own. All speaking of our legal standing before God... You can no better say then that God would reject you than you would say He would reject His own Son, Jesus Christ. You might have those days when you don't feel like a child of God. You might have those days when you don't necessarily emotionally feel the closeness. But none of that changes your status with Him. The language of adoption calls you to first and foremost realize this position, this legal standing. We have a tendency to think sometimes that we forfeit those blessings. That somehow God has withdrawn them. That somehow He writes us out of His inheritance. But as I said, you could no sooner think that He did that with you than you would say, He'd do the same to his own son, which is unthinkable. 
because your, your adoption into his family is by your union with Christ. You understand that? It is by your union. By his death and resurrection, as you place your faith in him, you are so intimately connected with him that you would, you would no sooner be cast aside than Christ would be cast aside. You are brethren now together with him. It's just really an amazing thought as you sit back and contemplate. I said Paul only uses it five times, but the language of adoption is, if you will, or the concept, I should say, of adoption is really undergirding the entirety of Scripture. I find it interesting. In the Old Testament, God never uses the word adoption to refer to his relationship with Israel. And yet when you come to chapter 9, verse 4, Paul says that Israel, or to Israel, belong the adoption. He never uses that language formally, but he always speaks to Israel in terms of his love for the fatherless. And if you really expand that language to speak not only about the proactive aspect of adoption, but if you will, the more passive aspect of, uh, of orphans and, and what they receive, you'll find that this undergirds all of Scripture. Israel was to understand that they were not the natural-born children of God, they were the chosen children of God. In fact, I think one of the reasons why you see this over and over and over again, why you hear this over and over and over again, Israel was to understand this reality in their life. And so it was by that that God could frequently appeal to them to remember what He's done for them and thus to love even the fatherless among them. This was, this was just, this just permeates the Old Testament. Israel was to always see and understand they had an obligation to the fatherless. They had an obligation to orphans. They were to have a ministry to them because they had been fatherless and, and God had taken them in. He took them in in that great passage, you remember, in Ezekiel 16 when they had been cast out and left into the field to be, to be um, exposed to the weather, to die, and God took them in and He, he cleansed them and he, he wiped away all of their blood. He bandage up their wombs, he dressed them, he clothed them, he raised them. This is the image. He treated them in every way as his own beloved child. It's one of the reasons today that adoption is such an important ministry for us to embrace, not only as families, but as a church. Not just because of the repeated emphasis and call in Scripture to to love those fatherless, but because it really demonstrates, it really reflects so much of what we have grasped about the way that God has loved us and what God's done for us. Adoption becomes such a vivid and vital ministry for the gospel. It teaches the gospel simply by putting on display in that very real way the kind of love that God has taught us in the gospel. Having adopted a child or children into your family is a daily reflection and really, it ought to be a daily uh, exhibit of worship, a daily reminder of worship, as you're constantly reminded of how God has done this for you. Adoption can also be a powerful witness, as it can spark all kinds of conversations 
to allow you to tell other people about how the gospel has impacted you. It obviously evangelizes children. In fact, it's a disturbing trend that the, the fastest growing demographic among de- uh, uh, adoptive families are gay and lesbian couples. Really, this ought to be the, the church who takes that lead, right? We ought to be the ones who, who feel this more than anyone. We ought to be the ones who are seeing the tremendous opportunity and calling through caring for the fatherless to powerfully influence many, many lives for the sake of the gospel. And ultimately, all this, even adoption, it just glorifies God. This was just, this was just flowing, if you will, through the veins of the Old Testament, Because Israel was always to look at the fatherless around them as uh, a reflection of the fact that they were once fatherless. And so they were to pour out their love on these orphans just as God has poured out His love on them. This is what God has done for you if you've received His Spirit. You're now His Son in every way, adopted into His family with full privileges, every legal privilege that Christ Himself had. Now, that's where you stand. That is your status, if you will. Something that's accomplished on on your behalf by Christ. But it still may not be the way you feel. It may not always be the way you feel. You may not always feel like a son or daughter of God. You may feel at times like a slave. You may feel at times like an outcast. You may feel at times alienated from God. But that's why Paul says in verse 15 that this spirit of adoption is the very one who comes into our hearts and by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Darby read this earlier. We saw it in Galatians chapter 4 when Paul says there, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So it's the spirit of who comes into our hearts and causes us to cry this way. Christ might win the status of sonship for us, but it's the Spirit who gives us the experience of it. This is just reminding us that this adoption isn't just legal, it is relational. It's not like you receive just a piece of paper, a sort of an official verification, but God actually looks upon you as his own son. He wants you to look upon him as your own father in a very real way. So much so that we now call God, we cry out to God, or we are to cry out to God, Abba, Father. Paul uses this common Aramaic word, Abba. It's a word with which a child would normally address his or her, his or her father. It takes the sort of the formal Hebrew word ab and adds to it the, the, the diminutive form. So ab becomes abba, very much like we would say papa. The early church fathers unanimously testify that this was the address of a small child to his father particularly true of Theodoret from Antioch who spoke Aramaic as his native tongue. And every one of them affirmed that this was the cultural equivalent of what we might 
phrase as Papa or Daddy. One commentator translates it as Dear Father. And so it's definitely intended to communicate this level of, of intimacy. Of, uh, we might even say intimate, uh, excuse me, innocent intimacy with God. Which is really virtually unheard of before the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel might have called God maybe just a few times Father in a very remote way, always in the third person. But when you come into the New Testament, what you find is something very different. You enter into, for example, the book of Mark and you hear Jesus praying to God and using this word, Abba. And none of that, none of that really intended to trivialize prayer. This was a culture in the uh, ancient Middle East that had a high sense of honor for their fathers. So this isn't trivializing anything in our relationship with God, but it's a, it's a term that is specifically intended to communicate intimacy and familiarity. You would never enter into someone's home and refer to them this way unless you were on a very familiar level with them. It indicates closeness. It indicates confidence in even in the relationship. But it's interesting that Paul takes that Aramaic word, Abba, and he pairs it together with the very formal Greek word, pater, the word father. So he says, not Abba, Abba, but Abba Pater, Abba Father. You wouldn't normally see those two words combined together from two different languages. You wouldn't normally hear a, a Greek-speaking person use an Aramaic word to refer to his father, Abba. You wouldn't normally hear a Hebrew speaker use a Greek word to refer to his father, Pater. Which all this suggests that what Paul is doing is making a specific reference back to the very words of Christ. This were, th- these were Christ's words in Mark 14.36 when he was crying out in the garden, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me. So Paul's probably thinking specifically of, of that moment in time and those words of Christ, that time of anguish, that time of suffering, that dark time in the life of Christ. And it's probably those times of suffering that Paul has in mind here. In fact, he, he uses the word cry, krazain, which is used in the Septuagint, the Old Testament, in places with a sense of distress or urgency. It's often associated with some sort of trial. And in fact, that's eventually where Paul even goes in the rest of Romans chapter 8. He begins to speak, for example, in verse 18 about the sufferings that we have in this life. And even down in verse 26, he, he speaks about this sort of suffering that we have going on in this life. The weaknesses, how in those times of weakness, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses with groanings too deep with words. Excuse me, too deep for words. And so when Paul says that the Spirit, or it's by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father, he probably has these seasons of time in our life of distress and suffering. 
Those times when we might be maybe less inclined to put on all of our spiritual fronts, the times when we might be less inclined to throw out all of our sort of intellectual arguments and all those things, those times when we really have sort of reached the end of ourself and we can't do anything else but to cry out with an intimacy with God that is beyond words. He's assuring us that even during those times of distress when your circumstances might tempt you to think that God has abandoned you, maybe you might feel cast aside as a son, it is in those times that this most basic impulse within you still wants to cry out to God. You may not fully understand, you might be racked with doubts and fears and all those things, but there's still an inner impulse within you that has a sense that God is your refuge. A kind of closeness that's been implanted in your hearts by the Holy Spirit and makes you want to cry that way. A sense in those times that we know God on familiar terms. This is the closeness that he's talking about. It comes into our hearts and becomes a form of assurance. A form of assurance that holds us even during the storms. Well, finally, it's not only by the Spirit that we're led into His likeness and that, that increasing holiness is a, is a form of assurance in our life. And it's not only the Spirit by which we cry with this closeness. But He tells us in verse 16, it's by the Spirit that we are reaffirmed in our relationship. This relationship, this sonship, this adoption is confirmed in our hearts in some in a sort of unspeakable way. Paul says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. He bears witness, assume matirai is the word. It's a sort of intensified form of the word for witness. The Holy Spirit inside of us is giving a strong and a powerful witness that we are God's children. And Paul doesn't expound this for us. He doesn't tell us what it looks like or feels like or all that because it's not always explainable. In fact, sometimes it defies explanation. Not that our standing with God is in itself irrational. It is very rational, and when we stand before God, we can understand all the assurances He gives us in Scripture, but it's not merely rational. It's not only rational. There are those times where it is this not only external witness, but it's this internal witness that rivets our heart to God. I remember when I was... When I first came to Christ, I was a young man, 17 years old, and um, I, I was introduced to somebody who offered to disciple me. And so we started to meet, and he was taking me through Scripture and, and just showing me things that I thought were just astounding, amazing. I mean, he's explaining so many things to me, and I, I couldn't wait to go back just to study the Scripture more and more and more. And this went on for six or eight weeks, and then finally... In about week six or eight, he said, well, I mean, we've been having a great time, but I want to really challenge you now. He says, I want you to 
think about baptism because you need to be baptized in order to be saved. I mean, I'd never heard that before. But apparently in his church, the Church of Christ, that was the doctrine. You can't be saved unless you're baptized. Now, I didn't know anything. I mean, I didn't know Paul's, what, what the name of Paul's wife was. I didn't know the 14th apostle. I didn't know anything. But I knew one thing. I knew I was saved. He, he could run loops around me in terms of the Bible, but he could never, ever tell me I wasn't one of God's. Because something happened. There was an internal witness that came into my heart that made an unshakable impression within me. And it might have, he might have thrown me into all kinds of doctrinal confusion for a while. But he couldn't tell me I wasn't a new creature in Christ. This is what Paul's talking about, this internal witness that comes into our hearts. As he says down in verse 23, it's sort of a down payment, a first fruits, an initial evidence. A pledge, that's what, that's what he calls it over in Ephesians 1.14, uh, uh, an arabon is the word, a guarantee, a pledge, literally like earnest money, a down payment, an evidence that there is more that's coming. That's what the experience of the Spirit is. He gives us an initial evidence, an initial a testimony, an initial witness of this new reality in in our lives, I, I remember another story. I was in uh, China. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I probably have told this so many times, you're probably tired of hearing it. But I remember when I was in China and I, I proposed to my wife when I was serving over there, she came to visit me and I proposed to her. And um, in my you know, um, foolishness, I had concluded that I was going to propose to her, but I didn't want to go out there because, you know, I didn't trust the, the system. I didn't have, know how the laws worked. I didn't know how everything worked. So I didn't want to go out there and spend a ton of money on a ring in China. I mean, it could be fake, you know, spend $1,000 on some little cubic zirconium or something like that. So I, I just concluded I was going to pop the question and then, you know, take care of all that later. So anyway, we went through uh, the whole thing and she graciously said yes. And so we went back to the apartment where she was staying with some other girls and they were all, you know, they kind of knew what was going to happen. So we opened the door and three of them lined up, all big smiles there, wanting to see the news. (laughs) Not hear the news, they wanted to see the news. And there was nothing on her finger. Now this was in the middle of a typhoon. It was literally like howling outside. Those girls said, you go back out there and you buy a ring for that girl. And that's what I did. I Sure enough, I went out in the typhoon and I went out and found some little gold ring and put it on her finger. Why? Because these down payments are important to us, right? These guarantees. And that's what a, a wedding ring is. It isn't a full deal yet, but it's, it shows the seriousness of the words that you gave. Christ gives us the Spirit this way. He puts the Spirit within us and it gives us a a sort of a confidence, an assurance, a witness. And it hasn't been fully revealed, but the Holy Spirit has come and as Romans 5.5 says, God has poured out His love or He shed His love abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. He gives us this evidence, this down payment. And then if you'll go down to verse 23, you'll see Paul says there, not only that, 
He says, the crea- uh, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. You say, well, wait a second. I thought he already said we're adopted. Yeah, we are adopted, but we just received the down payment. The full manifestation of everything that God has for you hasn't been put on display yet. You don't see the whole deal yet. You see only part of it, or you sense only part of it. You're experiencing only part of it. You only have the, the, the internal witness at this point, but not the external. Not the external in terms of what Paul speaks about there in verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. Or as John says in 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. It's not fully visible yet. That's why we still sometimes are prone to doubt. And we see the weakness of our flesh and we still struggle with the, the stumbling over our temptations. But it's during those times that we come back and reflect I may not fully, I may not fully on the outside look like one of God's children, but I have the down payment on the inside. I have the witness on the inside. And He causes me to want to cry out to God. He causes me to want to be conformed to His image. He causes me to want to follow, to be led, to put to death the deeds of the body, to feel conviction over my sin. I, don't, I, I may not fully see it on the outside. That frustrates me. But it's undeniable on the inside. Praise God for that kind of assurance. Certainly the Spirit can be grieved at times. Our conscience can be burdened by sin, by neglect of God's Word in our life, but the yearning is still there to call on God and to be His and His alone. The promise in Scripture is that when you do call, He hears you. The promise in Scripture is that when you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. That you may not have any of this. You haven't ever experienced the Holy Spirit inside of you. You haven't ever experienced this new work, this new life. You don't have any impulse to cry out to God in times of distress because you don't have any spirit crying, Abba, Father, within you. But the challenge and the promise is this, is that if you don't know God, if you are one of those here this morning and all you know is fear, when you contemplate death, all you think about is judgment. This is the promise of God. You call on the name of the Lord. You'll be saved. All those who call on Him, He'll by no means cast out. You'll be His own. He'll bring you into His family. You may not deserve it. You'll never deserve it. But He'll dress you in His best robe. He'll put the family seal on your finger. And he'll call you his son along with his own. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're grateful again for these precious reminders. And how how grateful we are 
for the Holy Spirit who has shed abroad in our hearts your love in such a real way, such a, such a tangible way. Lord, we confess that we are often tossed about by still remaining fears and doubts, and yet when we are shaken, we can never be shaken away from that work in our hearts. We know, Lord, that you have brought us into your family, and we know it by the life of the Spirit within. Strengthen his witness in our hearts. Deepen our understanding of your promises by his illuminating work. Assure us of our likeness by always conforming us to the image of your Son. And help us, Lord, that we would cry to you, ever feeling our weakness, cry out to you with a deeper and deeper intimacy as we share in your sufferings so that we can share in your life. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.